This is a UC Public Policy Channel program from the Goldman School of Public Policy at UC Berkeley. Visit us at www.uctv.tv/public-policy for more discussion on solutions for the good of all. We are so honored and fortunate to have Rashad Robinson with us today. Thank you, Rashad, for making time in a really busy day, the day after the debate, when you're having to talk to lots of press about the gov- uh, the president's call to mobilize white supremacists. Um, so we're so lucky to have you. Rashad Robinson is the president of Color of Change, a leading racial justice organization driven by more than 7 million members who are building power for black communities. Color of Change uses innovative strategies to bring about systemic change in the industries that affect black people's lives, Silicon Valley, Wall Street, Hollywood, Washington, corporate boardrooms, which is where Rashad and I have worked together in the past, local prosecutor officers, offices, state capitol buildings, city halls around the country. Under Rashad's leadership, Color of Change designs and implements winning strategies for racial justice, including forcing corporations to stop supporting Trump initiatives and white nationalists, framing net neutrality as a civil rights issue, holding local prosecutors accountable to end mass incarceration, police violence, financial exploitation across the justice system, including private prisons, forcing 100 corporations to abandon ALEC, the secretive right-wing policy shop, and changing representations of race and racism in Hollywood, as well as moving Airbnb, Google, and now Facebook to implement anti-racist initiatives. And one of their biggest signature campaigns was forcing and winning to getting Bill O'Reilly off the air. Rashad speaks widely in conferences, on the media. He's a noted keynote speaker. He um, has been profiled by the New York Times, Wired, The Root, Washington Post, Chronicle of Philanthropy, Huffington Post, PBS, BET, and so many other outlets. Um, Color of Change has been named under his leadership three times as Fast Company's most innovative company. And Rashad has won all kinds of awards, including Martin Luther King Memorial Foundation Award, Demos, United Church of Christ, and so many others. We are so lucky to have him with us today. Thanks, Rashad, for joining us. Thank you very much, my friend. That was very kind and um, and a lot um, and a lot there. So I am going to just share these slides. We're going to go in, um, talk a little bit about the work. My goal here is to really talk some about what does it mean to build 21st century infrastructure. Sometimes we think about politics, elections on the back end, um, but not think about sort of the the power that channels people towards election. The the reason why we engage in elections, which is not to get politicians jobs, but to make people's lives better. And so I'm gonna talk about that through some frameworks about how we think about it at Color of Change. And then, and then we can get into a range of things um, that I think can, um, um, from narrative change and, and, and messaging and communications to campaign work, corporate accountability um, and much more. All right, so Color of Change was founded about 15 years ago now. I wasn't at the organization at the time, but we were founded um, um, by actually two Bay Area activists, uh, James Rucker, who served as the first executive director, and Van Jones. Um, and we were founded in the aftermath of a flood, which was Hurricane Katrina. Uh, it was caused by bad decision makers and turned into a life-altering disaster by bad decision makers, Black folks, were literally on their roofs begging for the government to do something and they were left to die. And the thing about Katrina that I think is important here as we think about politics, as we think about social change, as we think about so many um, things that impact society and, and, give us the, and give us sort of the vehicles to raise our voices, 
is that Katrina illustrated things that people already knew, much the way that COVID did. Uh, geographic segregation, generational poverty, the impact of underinvestment in a wide range of systems. Uh, but at the heart of it, no one was nervous about disappointing Black people government, corporations, and media. And when institutions are not nervous about disappointing your community, it doesn't matter what kind of research report you have that illustrates all the facts and figures. It doesn't matter what you do in the courts if you don't have the power to implement it. It doesn't matter what folks in Silicon Valley build. Um, in so many ways, you need people power and narrative change. And in many ways, the organization was founded with a single email to about a thousand people. It came. Um, I'm really not sure what the age range is in this room, and so I sometimes date myself when I tell this story, but there was this telethon um, during Katrina where celebrities went um, to raise money for Katrina, and Mike Myers, who's Austin Powers, um, and uh, Kanye West went on the stage, and Kanye went off script and said, George Bush doesn't care about Black people. And um, it really did capture a lot of what people felt. The organization at the time got t-shirts made, that now if you wear the t-shirt in the wrong Kanye West news cycle, people can have a lot of questions for you about what do you mean? But we had this t-shirt made that said Kanye was right. Um, and the first email to a thousand people said Kanye was right. And we've grown from a thousand people, that first email to a movement of over 7 million black folks and allies of every race and every zip code um, all around the country. We have this theory that really sort of animates how we think about our work, particularly not only in the digital age and the age of a lot of information, um, but also in this sort of way in which um, we can um, mistake uh, sort of visibility for change. And so we have this um, idea of translating presence to power and not mistaking presence for power. Presence is visibility, awareness, retweets, shout outs from the stage. It can sometimes be winning an election. Power is the ability to change the rules. Presence is not bad, but we mistake presence for power. We sometimes think we've done something that we haven't done. We will think a black president means that we are post-racial. We may sometimes mistake uh, the internet stopping for a black celebrity who announces she's pregnant with America loving black people as much as America loves black culture. And America can love, celebrate, and monetize black culture and hate black people at the same time. And those two things don't always have to be in conflict. And so when we talk about not mistaking presence for power, it means holding a standard for what social change actually looks like. It, 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 it means that we don't sell people a story about what social change means that just makes us feel good, but actually delivers real change in people's lives. Another framework that really animates how we think about our work is that people do not experience issues, they experience life. That the forces that hold people back are deeply interrelated. That a racist criminal justice system requires a racist media culture to keep it alive. That economic inequality goes hand in hand with political inequality. That the forces that hold people back are interrelated. Uh, example of this is, um, you know, five years ago when we got to the ground in Ferguson and during the uprisings and we're helping to support local organizations and leaders channeling that energy. You could have gotten to Ferguson and some people would have said, this is an issue of criminal justice. 
And they would have been right to talk about how the criminal justice system was targeting and impacting. Some folks might have said it was policing, which is sort of a piece of criminal justice. Other folks would have looked at the fines and fees that were um, fueling St. Louis County and Ferguson um, and the economy and how they, these regressive taxes on Black uh, communities were um, destroying people's ability for social progress. And they would have been right to talk about the economy. Other folks would have talked about uh, dumping and lead and other things that were impacting the community and said it was an environmental issue. Some people could have went there and said, wow, this is in a city that dilutes the Black vote because of at-large elections, where because they don't have districts, um, a, town, a city that has um, a significant Black population doesn't actually have the right sort of representation to that's equivalent because of all the ways in which the voting system has been set up. This, none of those issues would have existed if the community was more powerful. And so power is very important to recognize that racism is a shapeshifter. The poll taxes become uh, voter ID laws. Uh, um, Jim Crow becomes mass incarceration. And so I'm gonna walk you through the animation of a campaign. And this really gets us into thinking about how we engage in elections, but also recognizing the role of uprisings, the role of people power. We are coming out of a, uh, uh, of a, of a period uh, where a lot of videos were on um, on air. We're we're inside of a period of deep um, social movement and social progress at the local level, um, particularly as it relates to criminal justice reform. And so I'm going to talk to you a little bit about some of how we move from moment to movement um, and from a campaign that happened several years ago, but still has sort of legs today. And so the top picture is Anita Alvarez. And Anita Alvarez was the Cook County uh, State's Attorney or District Attorney, um, depending on where you live. And Anita Alvarez had a history of racking up mass incarceration. Um, she had a history of not holding police accountable. Anita Alvarez was a Democrat or is a Democrat. And we, um, back in 2012, got to know Anita Alvarez because the Innocence Project called us up and we're like, we have a problem. We've got um, this district attorney who has um, who has is ignoring DNA evidence that would exonerate ten uh, black men of of a crime that they that they um, confessed to as youth, uh, but um, it looks like it was coerced, and DNA evidence has exonerated them. And Anita Alvarez is ignoring it because it's been years later, and the police officers that forced the confession have moved up high inside of Cook County, Chicago. Uh, politics. And um, we launched a campaign, we mobilized our members, we sent phone calls, we showed up to her offices with petitions. We found out that Anita Alvarez wanted to be a federal judge and was lobbying President Obama to get an appointment. We raised money and ran radio ads in, in Cook County and in um, DC, urging Obama not to make her a federal judge. Um, within a week of those radio ads running, somehow the DNA evidence suddenly mattered and people were being released. Um, but this is like whack-a-mole, that game at the carnival where something pops up and you hit it down and something else pops up and you hit it down. We haven't yet built the power to force this elected official to be nervous about disappointing us. The picture below is Sandra Bland. Sandra Bland um, may need no introduction to so many of us because her story um, is a story that is very much part of the Black Lives Matter story. 
um, of the say her name story of 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 a police um, interaction caught on tape um, where the person the black person did not um, uh, live to tell uh, a new story and to make a new story. She was found hanging in a Waller County jail after that interaction. Um, she was given a $5,000 bail by the local district attorney. We mobilized our members. We hired private investigators to go down to Waller County to find out what happened. We did a whole lot of work to try to mobilize and hold elected officials accountable. And at every turn, finding the limitations of various systems to actually do what we wanted to do. Um, this is um, actually right how politics in action um, can either sort of advance what you want or hold back what you want, depending on how much power you actually have. In both of these cases, we leverage digital technology to respond to the moment and mobilize people, to engage people and educate people, whether it was through hiring um, private investigators, whether it was through sort of petition deliveries and pressuring politicians. But what ended up happening was we did not have the right amount of power. So in 2016, we launched a political action committee and we asked the members who were signing petitions and making phone calls to join us in doing voter contact. And we picked seven district attorney races around the country. And we brought people into these settings of, of what we were calling textathons because we took the voter file and we cross-tabbed it of, of Black folks who don't re vote regularly with, um, you know, with um, um, the voter file and were able to have our members reaching out through text message to voters, educating people about district attorney races. We picked seven races. We partnered with local communities um, in places like Houston, Orlando, uh, Chicago, and had events. We increased voter turnout in all of the places we engaged in because we were reaching voters about things that they actually cared about. And in places like Chicago and Houston where folks turned out, they also voted up ballot as well for the top of the ticket races. But people turned out and voted and we won six of the seven races that we engaged in. The very next day, folks started calling us from district attorney offices around the country. What do you guys want? What are the things that Color of Change cares about? What are your demands? And we had to start building a new level of infrastructure to start being able to channel our members' aspirations into the type of demand on district attorneys. Also working to um, figure out where we had power to protect people and where we had power to put new people in office. What's important here, right, is that in most of the places where we've engaged in district attorney races in big cities, we are kicking Democrats out of office, right? There's sometimes a story that just becomes about simple party identification, but we had far too many people with a D next to their name who were, could only be elected with black votes, but then get in office and don't care about black lives. And what we've actually had to be able to do is hold a standard for what does it mean to be able to have our votes and a standard that means that you're actually working on behalf of true safety and justice. And so we launched the Winning Justice platform that allowed, that is the only searchable database of the 2,400 prosecutors in the country, a place where you can go to winningjustice.org, learn more about prosecution, and are now building a larger movement around the country of engaging, pushing prosecution offices. Why do I say that's important? Because in this moment, as we are 
talking about Black Lives Matters, we are talking about systemic racism, as we are talking about the criminal justice system, and we're asking people to vote, we're demanding people to get involved, we want to make sure we're directing that energy at places that are going to be a force multiplier, that are actually going to be the places for which if we engage and get someone new in office, it'll actually make people's lives better. And district attorneys are the most powerful actors in the criminal justice space. They determine whether or not someone is prosecuted, whether or not someone, um, whether or not a police officer is held accountable. And by having more power over these positions, by having people who are office, who are nervous about disappointing us, we can get more done. Over 80% of district attorneys run unopposed and 90% of district attorneys are white. And so part of what we have to do is engage in the spaces to change the incentive structure. And so really how we sort of move a piece of infrastructure of 7 million folks, of, of moments that are constantly happening in the world is that we try to give people a very strategic thing to do when something happens. So you'll never see a campaign from Color of Change asking black people to, and our allies to tell Mitch McConnell to stand up for affirmative action. We know that no matter how many people sign that petition, Mitch McConnell will never stand up for affirmative action. So we, but, so we respond, but respond effectively and respond with strategy. We work to build pressure that influences the outcomes of what's gonna happen and helps to till the soil, bring in allies. And then we're constantly trying to look for that systemic pivot, whether it be an election, whether it be forcing um, a corporation to change its policy and practice, but constantly looking for the pivot that can, that can raise the floor on what's acceptable and push up the ceiling on what's possible. And then over time, trying to expand and scale that engagement with a deep recognition that in order to really change the rules as it relates to race and racial injustice, to use the levers of electoral power or corporate power to get us there, we actually have to be at the proper scale for the sort of people to, to feel the impacts of that change. And this means that we have to have a new model, a new understanding for what does it mean to engage in elections. And so this is how we sort of uh, think. So there's sort of two different types of models that one could have, right? This is like the candidate uh, uh, preservation model. Like sometimes um, when, depending on how um, comfortable I am, I will sometimes call this how we dealt with Obama model. Um, and, um, and it's the uh, model of we're focusing on preserving the candidate, focusing on how do we keep helping this candidate win. Um, it's a model of protecting the candidate that doesn't allow us uh, to fully build the right level of power to hold this person accountable. Um, and so, you know, when that investment all goes into protecting the candidate, what we end up doing is, um, having to follow the candidate on what the candidate believes is possible, what the um, um, a representative believes impossible. There's a better way, a better way, which is really about empowering um, and mobilizing people, having people at the center, not only of pushing sort of what is possible, but also holding that politician accountable. And you know, when, when we think about our work electorally, we're not donating money to the PACs or the campaigns of a candidate. What we are doing is building outside independent pressure. 
And so in all of the races we engage in, what we recognize at Color of Change is we will never have as much money as the corporation, but we have as the people. And so this election cycle, we are leveraging 85,000 volunteers to reach over 4 million voters in swing states, engaging through third party engagement, because we recognize that if we um, can put um, people in office by expanding the base of black voters, then we can also send a message that we can take them out if we need to. We put you there, we can take you out. And that gives us more power to actually getting the type of change implemented. It gives us more power when um, we have to get someone to take a step further on an issue that might make them uncomfortable. All of that is really part of creating the right level of dynamic where the people are in charge, not the politicians. I want to end, um, and you know, I'm hoping to talk more about cultural aspects, narrative, all of that. Um, a lot of our work, and these are all pre-COVID, they make me smile and sad, um, but these are all from Black women's brunches and Black family celebrations that we have in communities where we bring people together around community first and then work to move people around issues. If our goal is to expand the number of people who see politics and political activism um, for them, then we have to start um, in a place of aspiration. And so for us, Black joy is not the absence of pain, but the presence of aspiration, not just what we are fighting against, but what we are fighting for. Because through this whole pandemic, through this whole uprising, I hear a lot of people say to Black folks, young Black activists, just vote. And what I want to say to all of us is the reminder that Black people are the protagonists in the American story of voting. No group of people have fought harder, stood on longer lines, faced more indignities to express our will for a better future. That's exactly what a protagonist in any story is. It is the people who have to overcome so many barriers in order to win at the end of the story. And that's who Black people have been for voting and for American democracy at every single turn, working to remake it, um, even in the face of so many people standing in the way. And that is really what fuels what we do our work and how we do our work. And what, at the end of the day, it's how we keep a high standard about not doing politics for politics' sake, but engaging in politics as one of the many levers that makes uh, change possible uh, for our community and builds a more human and less hostile world for all of us. So I will stop. <laughs> Thank you, Rashad. That was amazing. So appreciate that. Um, so I so appreciate your framing because uh, we are teaching elections 2020, but we're actually doing it from an entirely race-based perspective. Professor Cohen and I are both affiliated with the African American Studies Department at UC Berkeley, and so the class is a cross-listed public policy and uh, African-American studies, and um, some people might think, uh, why are you teaching elections entirely from a race-based perspective? Obviously, elections has a lot of other issues, but I think the way that we've been talking about the very nature of the Constitution and the way the elections have been set up in this country, and this week we talked about the way the two-party system was set up, frankly, in our country, is all grounded in race and the history of race in this country. So maybe so many questions, but to start there in terms of the two-party system and maybe also reflected in what we saw last night 
and and a lot of what you talked about in terms of going after Democrats, how do you all see your work on racial equity, kind of interacting with the two party system with the, you know, and with the two parties in particular, and any hope you see kind of uh, in moving that going forward? Yeah, I am uh, very lucky that I cut some of my early teeth um, in advocacy and organizing, um, having to go to the South um, to do, um, as a young organizer, for an organization that worked on alternative voting systems, like cumulative voting, ranked choice voting, um, other systems. And going to the South after the ACLU or the NAACP had won a voting rights lawsuit, but in communities where they couldn't draw a single member district, right, where they couldn't draw a district. And if you um, wanna read about um, some of the ways in which alternative voting systems have been leveraged at different parts in um, our, our country's history to um, produce um, a more uh, sort of racial equality through voting rights, read some of the work of Lanny Grenier, particularly um, I would say Lift Every Voice, uh, Tyranny of the Majority. And in both of those books, she really does um, sort of highlight her work at LDF at recognizing the limitations of single member districts and all of the ways, and actually predicting in some ways, some of the ways in which multiracial democracies and multiracial communities would run up against single member districts um, that sort of um, would not allow for the type of full participation. Um, California was already there during her, her sort of seminal writings um, with um, API and Latino, um, communities and black communities all contending for power. Um, but what does it mean to have a democracy that actually can produce representation that reflects the will of the people, the aspirations of the people, the demands of the people? And so, you know, coming from that sort of early understanding of going to places where um, in the early 2000s, the um, consent decrees were handed down from judges for them to integrate pools in the early 2000s. And instead, the mayor would just cement over the pool instead of in integrate the pool. Those were some of the communities that we were sort of going to to try to like, you know, me and my uh, dreadlocks and dashiki were like trying to like go to these communities, oftentimes staying with the local minister and trying to like convince communities of how they would vote um, to make sure they had representation. And so, you know, our system that we currently have is a result of those in power. It is a manufactured system. It does not actually have to be the system that we have. Um, and, you know, lots of times we will be sold a story that this is the system, um, the system is set up this way um, because it's the best possible way. But Throughout our history, we've had to evolve and change. Um, and if we are going to get to a multiracial democracy that actually works and produces it, we are gonna have to think about multi-member multi districts, uh, cumulative voting, ranked choice voting. We're gonna have to think about alternative ways to get at um, bodies that can be fully representative. So with that said, inside of the sort of day-to-day -day reality of black folks that need us to help them win elections today, um, you know, we focus a lot um, on um, holding Democrats accountable because we recognize that if we can push and channel where our members already are, um, then we can shape the sort of um, range of debate 
sort of where things start and where things end. And that means we have to engage in conversations around money and politics. That means we have to engage in conversations um, around a sort of corporate the corporate sort of role in the Democratic Party and who gets to set the agenda. So it means we have litmus tests for candidates around who's taking money from the bail bonds industry, who's taking money from private prisons. So in 2016, as an example of how all of this really connects together is that we had to push the Clinton campaign to give back and stop taking private prison money. Uh, Hillary Clinton had one of the most progressive criminal justice uh, platforms of any Democratic nominee, despite anything you may sort of read in the media. But it's hard, it was hard to fully believe if you are taking money from private prisons. So we started with a behind the scenes conversation and we went back and forth for a couple of weeks. And then we got tired of going back and forth. So we sent the Clinton campaign two emails. One email had a picture of her with a smiling face and it talked about how she'd given back the money and that, um, and that we were really proud and had all the footnotes about why taking private prison. The other email was a sad, angry Hillary and she hadn't given back the money. And we said, you pick which one we send at the end of this week. Um, and uh, I was one of my more gangster moments. Um, and they picked the smiling Hillary Clinton email. And we, and they gave back the money and we got to announce it together and we got to move it forward. And we got to set a standard that no Democrat on that stage during the debates had taken money from private prisons because a new standard had been set and a new sort of um, rule, um, unwritten, um, but a new rule had been sort of created around sort of the role of private prisons. We moved them from what was previously uh, acceptable to something that was no longer acceptable and thereby changing the range of debate. And that's why you engage in the party system, right? Because you can then take something off the plate and thereby put other things on the plate. And that means that you then have to leverage, you have to think about what is my power? What are the sort of things I have, right? And so one thing that we knew in that situation was our power is that like the Clinton campaign didn't want to get hemmed up by us publicly, which is why we just didn't send out an email saying, Hillary Clinton's taking money from private prisons, aren't you mad? We just like, you know what? We're going to give you a chance to like do this the right way because we know you're, you're, you'll be much more likely to like walk down this road with us if you can get a benefit out of it, then once we start hitting you, now you're damned if you do, you're damned if you don't. You like to give, you like, now you gotta give back money and you've already now taken the hit for it. And so part of this is also thinking strategically about sort of how do we leverage the power of our people to not just get press, to not just get visibility, but to also get the type of change that um, is effective. So. I hope I answered some question in there. <laughs> you did. I mean, a lot of what we talked about on Monday was um, that the center is not static and you can move what the center is between the supposed right and left. And clearly you did that with that yeah. example. So that's great. I think one of the million dollar questions that we all want to hear about is, well, you know, what about the debate and what were you talking about in your press conference right before you got on? <laughs> yeah. And, um, you know, again, is there any hope? given this situation. <laughs> so we've been in a five-year battle with Facebook, um, maybe six years now. I feel like I'm like, when did it start? It's like maybe six years now, over a range of things, from surveillance on Black Lives Matter activists to um, 
to um, uh, handing over our, our stuff to law enforcement, to the ways in which the platform allowed circumvented civil rights law. You can market housing to just white people, market jobs just to men, all on, to what we've been in the middle of, which has been very much focused on all the ways in which um, you know, profit and growth um, have been at the heart of, um, of, of the platform's um, role outside of safety, integrity, and security. And to the extent that, as a result, it's impacted our elections in deep ways from 2016 to the fermenting of hate um, to what we saw on the stage last night with um, the sort of uh, statement around uh, the Proud Boys uh, that Donald Trump made. And it relates directly to Facebook. Why? Why does it relate to Facebook? Because about 12 o'clock yesterday afternoon, I emailed Cheryl Sandberg to um, push her around the fact that they were still leaving up this post from Donald Trump Jr. calling on an army of Trump folks to show up to the polls to watch the polls, that it clearly violated a set of policies that we had helped get implemented. About two hours before the debate, Cheryl, as well as her vice president for policy, who oversees content moderation, responded back in writing to me, quibbling over the words enlist and army. Um, and trying to, I don't know, explain to me civil rights once again, which Mark has tried to do and Cheryl has tried to do. And um, it's never gone well for them, but they just keep trying. When you have billions of dollars, you just can keep doing what you want to do. And you have no government regulation and rules. And so, you know, today we were out talking about that. They, you know, decided they were going to put it in writing. Um, and I'm sure, like, um, they were, I'm, I'm hoping that they were watching the debate and being like, ah, oh, shit. Um, but, um, but all of that to say, you know, I started my morning off on MSNBC talking about it. Um, I'm going to end my day on CNN talking about it. It has been, um, it has um, very much been um, an opportunity for us to hopefully get some final rules in place on this platform before the election in ways in which, um, you know, a platform that is the largest communication tool that the world has ever seen, um, that is controlled by one person um, who has 60% of the shares, is chairperson and CEO, um, but is deeply afraid of regulation um, and at every turn will, um, you know, allow Trump to set the terms. Um, and so I took that away. I was not surprised by Donald Trump um, defending. Um, uh, or, or refusing to, or, you know, mobilizing. There's a whole lot of ways you could look at it depending on, um, you know, your point of view. What I am, though, focused on is how do we um, use now what is something that is crystal clear and clear as day um, to really challenge either, A, all the people that have been gaslighting us, um, and to not allow them to continue to set policy and continue to be the people that we go to and turn to for these things, to really be clear that the enablers um, also need to know that they're going to be held accountable. Um, and maybe we get some of these enablers to uh, start doing more. And then at the end of the day, to help our members and the larger public 
be more vigilant around the fact that we may just have to be our own brothers and sisters keepers on this because we actually can't rely on this platform to do what it needs to do. The other things about, I mean, I guess you can call it a debate. I mean, I've been in enough debates. I've been in some like, you know, things that were like, you know, a lot of back and forth. You know, I've had to go on Bill O'Reilly um, in the past and other things, but that was something different. Um, and, you know, I think, um, I think we're getting what corporate America is paying for, right? Corporate America um, was willing to overlook every single thing about Donald Trump as long as he delivered tax cuts and as long as he delivered, um, um, you know, uh, deregulation. And, um, and this is sort of a result of that. And part of what we see as our job moving forward is to not let people forget it, to let people sort of know at every turn the results and the implications of making those choices and the harm that it causes and to not let people, um, you know, you know, turn around three times and pretend like they're a new person when in fact they were sort of responsible for these things, um, not allowing uh, corporate leaders that stood, be, be, stood quiet while this was happening and enabled it to, um, you know, uh, pretend like they're going to lead us out of it. All right, one more question from me, and then I want to let Professor Cohen ask a question, then we can open it up. The last students have lots of questions. Um, on Monday, we talked, well, the last two weeks, we've been talking about the likely need to mobilize the, the day after the election, if not before that, to protect our democracy, given that it doesn't seem that President Trump is going to want to let go <laughs> or move on, and that he's going to want to try to stop the vote, the recounting, that he's going to want to get the Supreme Court involved. Um, so I was telling everybody about Protect the Results, which you've been a part of. Um, love to hear you talk about how you all are thinking about mobilization, both at Color of Change and with the broader coalition. Now, right after the election, how long do you think we'll need to be out in the streets? What does it look like? Everything. So I'm, I am preparing folks to like, you know, let's talk about vacation in January. Um, um, which is like a weird thing to do when you like run an organization that does elections, you know, like folks, you know, folks, folks are already planning those like those vacations. And right now people, a lot of people need them, um, um, given the, you know, coronavirus and everything else that's sort of happened. Um, I think what I'm really trying to prepare my team for, which my team is pretty good for preparing the larger movement for, is that there is no like referee that existed. You know, sometimes we sort of imagine, um, you know, after Trump was elected, I heard a lot of people say, this is not my country. And I was like, well, where is your country? Um, because, um, or I can't, or like, this is not the country I grew up in. I was like, um, I don't really know what you're talking about. What I think is important to remember, and what I said a lot when Donald Trump got elected, was that Barack Obama and even George W. Bush were change candidates. And Donald Trump is a change the rules candidate. And the difference around that is, is changing the rules is a different kind of archetype. It means that all of the conventions, all of the ways in which we, the, the rules that we relied on, the things that we think are supposed to happen go out the window. And so you actually have to be prepared for a lot of other different things. And changing the rules kind of means that, you know, we, I may have disagreed with the um, 
housing and urban development or education secretaries in previous administrations, but I knew they knew something about housing and urban development, and I knew they knew something about education. And the changing of the rules means that you just change all conventions. It means that people don't even have to know anything about the thing to be have the job. It changes um, the conventions of being able to stand on the stage and feeling guilty about lying a bunch. Like you can just lie, and it doesn't even matter. Like at, at any point. Um, and so we have to stop thinking that if we say it's hypocrisy, that people, that that matters anymore. We have to stop thinking that if we just call someone a racist for the millionth time, that suddenly like that will change the conditions. And we have to work to sort of um, not direct our marches at Donald Trump, but direct them at the institutions for whom showing up will actually matter. And that means that we're gonna have to mobilize you know, people who work inside of Fortune 500 companies to mobilize on their CEOs who may uh, be um, standing in the wrong way. If the results are that Donald Trump lost the election but he refuses to leave, then we are going to need to pressure a whole set of enablers that um, um, cannot remain um, sort of silent or in the middle or even be complicit we have to make them just as accountable for these things and force them to actually have to do something that they don't want to do. And so part of how I really think about it and part of what we are preparing for is, um, um, yes, so there's going to be the pointing and pivot on keeping the recounts going and showing up at the courthouses and all those things. But I also think about what are the sort of um, uh, financial, cultural, and other institutions that showing up and making those demands will also be important um, to creating a, a condition, the condition where more people um, and more uh, folks with power and leverage um, do not allow this to happen on their watch. Thank you so much, Rashad. Um, Professor Cohen, do you wanna ask a question before we open it up to the students? Uh no, I, I, I just I would like to to thank you for this I think really outstanding uh, introduction to your work, and I I just love the line that black people are the protagonists in the story of American voting. That's a I think an outstanding summation uh, of the of the work that we were trying to do uh, both in this class and the, that Color of Change presents. So thank you for that. I want to go just directly to the students. I think they have some truly outstanding questions. So if that's all right uh, with you, I'm gonna. Um, just go to them and ask them to unmute themselves and um, yeah, go ahead, uh, Amin. Perfect, thank you, Professor. Um, and thank you for coming in. My internet's been spotty, but uh, for the parts I've been allowed to catch, I think you've uh, touched on some fantastic points. You've talked a lot about the electoral side, but the president yesterday pretty much endorsed um, white supremacy. California is now burning down because of inaction on climate change. Um, and there's a whole host of other problems. Biden's far from perfect. At what point do we pivot away from electoral politics into more direct actions, including stuff on, you know, labor organizing, strikes, and um, outside of the electoral sphere? So I don't think it's ever going to be either or. I think that you don't pivot from one to the other, right? I mean, it's like, you know, as a person who, uh, you know, studies, um, King and Rusted and Baker and Hammer and so many others who came before, they recognized the, the sort of intersection between all of those things, right? The March on Washington was a march for jobs. Um, and, um, and so I think that we don't, 
pivot out of them, we just recognize that I like to think about elections in an exercise uh, sort of analogy, maybe because uh, the virus is keeping me away from the gym. But like, exer- but like uh, voting is sort of like the stretching. Voting is like to civic engagement, like, like the stretching is to like exercise, right? Stretching alone is probably not going to help you reach all your goals. But if you don't stretch, you're going to hurt later. And so in some ways, we have to think about sort of our, our sort of engagement in the electoral process is not the, the thing that um, helps us reach all of our goals, but it's a metric on the road that allows us to be able to do the things we need. In some ways, I like to think about elections as like picking the person who I want to hold accountable. Um, who do I want to run campaigns on? Um, and who do I feel would be the best person to run campaigns on? Um, you know, the current nominee wasn't, wasn't the person who I wanted to run campaigns on, but that's who we've got now. Um, and that's where we're heading. So I think it, I think that, um, we should never, um, give up on what it means to hold corporations, media, all sorts of other institutions accountable, whether it's through direct service, whether it's through financial campaigns, whether it's through a whole set of things. Um, and we should make sure that we're constantly connecting electoral power. And that's why we have to start before the general election, because if we wait till the general election, we end up with choices and a table that's been set for us by others. Perfect, thank you. Uh, that's great. All right, next question, please. Hi, um, thank you so much for coming and for your insights. Um, I particularly appreciated your focus on Black joy um, and the idea that it's not just absence of pain, but this presence of aspiration and hope and all of that. Um, And I feel like oftentimes in our electoral system, when policies aren't actively racist, and harming Black communities, they focus more on harm reduction than uplifting joy and uplifting Black communities. So I'm wondering if you believe that Black joy is possible with an electoral system that was founded in white supremacy, or should it be pushed through, pushed forth through direct action and community building outside of electoral politics? Um, or given your last response, do you think we need a combination of the two? Um, yeah. Yeah, I mean, like, Black people um, had to have had to be the most forgiving people, you know, or some of the most forgiving people on earth, um, right? Um, to still believe in voting and democracy to for Black women in particular. Um, and, um, and so I say that to say that, like, Black joy can constantly exist. I mean, there was the the phone calls I got, you know, from in 08 after, you know, uh, Barack, Michelle, Sasha, and Malia walked out on that stage um, in Chicago were were calls of Black joy, <laughs> of calls of of, and I mean, and and that doesn't mean that electoral politics and Barack Obama delivered everything we hoped, but we should remember that like that was a lot of black joy. Um, and it's always important from an infrastructure perspective that we place it, we place joy, any joy in our life inside of a whole set of other sort of um, pieces of data. 
I do want to say something about how you started the question because I really appreciated um, sort of the sort of point around policies, whether they be sort of not actively racist. Um, and there's a lot to like how we even talk about problems, right? How we talk about systems. And we spend a lot of time at Color of Change from a narrative perspective, really trying to dig into focusing on the problem in a way that leads us to the right solution, um, because that ends up being a lot of problems. So some examples there, right? We will say Black people are less likely to get a loan from the bank instead of saying banks are less likely to give loans to Black people. It may seem simple, but on one hand, we go, on one hand, we like um, spend a lot of time and energy doing financial literacy programs for Black people so that it can somehow show up better inside of banks that have redlined, targeted, attacked us since their very foundation. We will say Black women are less likely to get um, jobs in C-suites of corporations. On one hand, we will, uh, instead of corporations, systemically exclude Black women from C-suite positions. On one hand, we'll get a whole lot of pipeline and mentorship programs so Black women can somehow do better inside of racist, misogynist structures, which are not designed for them to succeed, rather than um, dismantling those structures. And so lots of times, we will talk about the systems that harm and hurt Black people in passive voice, and Black people in active voice, instead of actually talking about the systems in active voice and Black people in the passive voice. Because we spend a lot of time in this country through public policy of trying to fix Black people and Black families, even to the point of saying Black communities are vulnerable. Vulnerability is a personal trait. I may personally feel vulnerable when I go on social media and I see an ex that's way too happy with their life. I will feel vulnerable and I will have to personally work on myself so I don't do something that I'll regret later. Black communities have been targeted, attacked, exploited. And so public policy, and a lot of it is designed to give us charitable solutions to structural problems. And so what I mean by that is that we tell stories that are unfortunate about inequality, almost like it's a car accident. It just happened, rather than it's unjust. And so then we celebrate corporations for sending water bottles to Flint when they haven't been paying their fair share of taxes, and that is why uh, the water is not clean. We will celebrate um, a big business who's not paying their fair share of taxes for doing a service day at an inner city school instead of actually having a real analysis about why our schools are underfunded in the inner city and how we actually get to full funding of those schools, right? Charitable solutions to structural problems is not an accident because poverty is not an accident. Um, inequality is not an accident. It's actually been manufactured by choices. And so part of even how we have to build momentum of people to focus on the right things is to actually tell the story correctly because it's not just our opponents who have those stories, it's that we internalize it ourselves, right? We internalize these stories of constantly trying to fix Black people and Black families rather than focusing on the systems and the structures that are not broken, but are actually operating exactly the way they're designed. Um, and so, um, so for me, like, that is also has to be very much tied into um, um, our electoral power conversation. If there is not a week that goes by that I don't feel like I am correcting or pushing back on or trying to 
pivot slightly an elected, an elected official, congressional black caucus members, like, you know, people who you think would like say it the right way on some of these things who start out seeing black people and black communities from a deficit perspective, rather than seeing us from a perspective of hope, aspiration, prosperity, joy, opportunity. Thank you so much. Thank you. That was, uh, that was a fantastic answer. Really super informative, illuminating. Thank you very much. All right, next question. Hi, Rashad. How are you? Good. Cool. Um, so this question has been on my mind a lot for the past year. I think especially with the Black Lives, Mo Black Lives Matter movement in 2020, there's been a lot more petitions and just all over social media. And I think they've been a great way of involving a lot of people and creating a mass movement virtually. How effective do you think petitions really are in holding politicians accountable and creating systematic change? Yeah. Um, so we write a lot of petitions. And I don't think petitions are um, effective in and of themselves. Petitions are, um, petitions are a tactic. And if your tactic isn't connected to a larger strategy, then you don't actually, then it's not going to be effective at all. That's why I said you'll never see a petition from Color of Change that says, tell Mitch McConnell to stand up for affirmative action. But you may have seen them from a lot of other organizations with no power analysis or theory about why people signing a petition to Mitch McConnell about affirmative action is going to get him to care about affirmative action, right? And so um, part of how I think about petitions is almost like a virtual doorknob. When moments in crisis hit, it gives us the ability to capture that energy. But that respond, build, pivot, and scale that I talked about is our way of sort of leveraging how do we capture energy and then channel people up the ladder of engagement to deeper and deeper action, but also channel the energy from something that could be like whack-a-mole where we're just following different things because um, we're hit with all sorts of information every day to actually moving people towards the type of change that um, uh, raises the floor on what's acceptable and pushes up the ceiling on what's possible. And so, you know, there's a, there's a way in which um, digital tech, okay, so I'll tell a quick story. This quick story was told to me when I was like 22. I was living in like a group house with other activists, SCIU activists, um, you know, USSA. It's like, we were all like living there. I was doing youth, or I was like doing voting rights or youth organizing. It was like in between those two jobs. Um, and, um, and we had, we had a couple of mentors who would like talk to a lot of us. We all had these houses in, um, in, uh, Mount Pleasant and a lot of the activists that lived around us all like run different organizations now, 20 years later or almost 20 years later. Um, um, a woman by the name, a, a SNCC organizer by the name, former SNCC organizer by the name of Heather Booth, who does a lot of mentorship would bring um, other SNCC leaders around. And Julian Bond spent some time with us and I got to know Julian Bond, the late Julian Bond, who was one of the leaders of SNCC and became chairman of the NAACP. And if you don't know, I'm assuming based off what you all are studying, you all know who Julian Bond is. So Julian Bond told me this story about the Watts line. The Watts line was the precursor to the 1-800 number. They installed it in their Shore University office where Ella Baker was like located. And the Watts line, Basically, back during that time, 
you had to call, when you call long distance, they transferred you operator, operator, you may have seen this in old movies where like you call a long distance number and then operators keep transferring you. In the South at the time, the white, the operators were largely controlled by the White Citizens Council, the KKK. So the calls would be intercepted. So a call between Shore University and Tuskegee would get intercepted and maybe information about the next sit-in or the next information would get, would get cut off. And so they installed Watts line because A, it helped them move their information quicker. B, Watts allowed them um, to avoid um, uh, being intercepted. Um, Watts and the technology and the tool was not their strategy. If SNCC did not have a power analysis, if they didn't have people willing to put themselves on the line, if they didn't have a theory of change about sort of how the actions they were taking were going to add up and multiply into something more powerful, they could have had Twitter. Um, and in some ways, it's like why I talk about the difference between presence and power, because sometimes we mistake things that are deeply visible, deeply in our face, for actual power. We will mistake that the New York Times ran an op-ed on our story for the fact that we've got enough people on it. And I don't, and I'm not, and I write pieces sometimes in the New York Times uh, when I wanna go through that editorial process. Um, and, um, and it's not a bad thing. It just means we shouldn't mistake it because a school of white children can get shot up and we still don't have gun reform when 75% of Americans believe in gun reform. That's not about presence or petitions or, or people saying they care about something. That's about power. And part of how we have to think about all of this is thinking that it's not just simply about hearts and minds or convincing people to be on our side. It's about building power and forcing institutions to do things that they don't want to do. And when it comes to racial justice or racial injustice, um, uh, the, uh, there is nothing more American than the dehumanization and servitude of black people. Um, um, the only thing maybe more American is the genocide of indigenous and native populations. And so to the extent that um, there are a whole lot of people that are incentivized to keep the current systems in place, then, we're, then we can't simply be in a petition space. But petitions allow me to reach people, move people into formation, educate people, and direct people. So when you get a petition, you should always be kicking the tires on the theory of change. If they tell you, like, what are they telling you here about, like, what they're asking you to do and why? Does that seem like a good use of time? You all are very smart, right? You all sort of, like, understand how systems work. So, like, does that even make sense? Like... Um, and if it doesn't make sense, then people are probably trying to do list building and they're probably trying to get your name and they're probably trying to get your name because they're going to come back to you. Doesn't mean that that's always bad. Doesn't mean that building bases is not a good thing. It does mean though that we should be very clear about the difference in different types of petitions and who's asking you to do something and why. All right. Thank you so much. Great. Thank you. Let me uh, go. Uh, hi, uh, Mr. Robertson. Uh, Robinson, thank you so much for being here today. Uh, my question was about the outcome of the election, because depending on the outcome, it seems fair to say that your organization's upcoming work will be different. Um, 
So I was just curious about what difference you envision for your work and your goals, particularly if uh, Trump wins versus if Biden wins. And then also uh, considering the fact that they're not the only people that will be um, up for election. There's a lot more um, individuals running in different capacities. So I was just curious about that. So the organization's uh, Color Changes Political Action Committee is, you know, uh, we can go, you can always go and check it out at votingwhileblack.com. Um, and the Political Action Committee is doing a lot of work focused on district attorney races. Um, so really, and, and that will continue. We are working at the local level where most of the criminal justice work happens. 85% of people are incarcerated at the local level. Policing is decided at the local level. And so, so much of our work around criminal justice is local. Um, and so regardless of what happens with the election, we will be sort of still focused there. We are obviously doing a whole set of scenario planning about how we're gonna move ourselves forward depending on what happens um, in the election. Um, you know, and there can be different scenarios at the federal level and that will require sort of different types of posture. Um, you know, back in uh, the Obama years, we spent a lot of time uh, going back and forth to the federal government. Sometimes we would be delivering petitions out in front of DOJ or, or the Labor Department or HUD or some of these places. And sometimes we would go inside for meetings. And, um, and we had that sort of inside, outside, um, you know, they, um, we, were, we, were, we were annoying, but we were um, in conversation. When the 16 election happened, we knew that the strategy had to change. And we knew that we couldn't go hat in hand to HUD or DOJ and ask for things the same way. Like, what were we gonna ask Jeff Sessions for at the time at DOJ? Like, to care about black people? Like, um, and so we really did change our posture and we focused a lot of our energy on enablers and corporate enablers, we forced a whole set of corporations to divest from the Trump Business Council. We forced a whole set of credit card companies to stop processing fees for white nationalist groups that were organizing where you could go on the Proud Boys site, as an example. And we got Proud Boys cut off from being able to process Amex, PayPal, America, um, Discover, Master, Visa, all those books. Um, it's just an example, which uh, then forced uh, me to have to move and us to have to get security um, uh, because um, you can't do that without backlash. Um, and that was uh, um, not joyful. Um, I, I say all that to say, we've been through the phases of having to pivot and we're constantly having to pivot based off of dynamics. And that's what we're going to do. Um, and there's like scenario planning happening, some of which, um, because this is on like, YouTube and or Facebook. I'm not going to go that deep in, but um, you could imagine based off of how I describe the sort of pivot from um, Obama to Trump, how we might be thinking about um, posture, uh, positioning, and, um, and engagement. Awesome. Thank you. Yeah. Great. Thank you for that question. Let's go to the next one. Hi, good morning. Um, I had a question regarding campaign finance. Uh, you made mention earlier about Hillary Clinton uh, accepting money from prison corporations and this sort of thing. And I, I had a question because 
has become increasingly difficult with the ruling of Citizens United. Uh, it has really muddied the waters in terms of campaign finance, and it's made it harder for smaller um, candidates to actually build, I guess, a, a bit of money and everything else. So my question to you, is it possible um, to accept money from a controversial corporation yet uh, to remain independent? And is there a way that you could frame that in a positive light? Like, uh, let's say Bernie Sanders accepted money from some corporation that might go against his views. Is it possible just to take the money and run and, and keep, keep on your message? Or is that just bad form? Like, how would you manage that? I don't think so. I don't think um, we're the only national black civil rights organization that doesn't take corporate financial support. Um, I don't think it's possible. I don't think corporations give you money because they just like care. That's not the corporations don't have hearts. They have wallets and they um, and the, and it doesn't mean that sometimes there's not partnerships that don't matter. There's not doesn't mean there's not good people that work inside of there. It does mean, though, at the end of the day, that I don't think you can go around taking, particularly as it relates to elections. Now, every once in a while, there are certain types of corporations. And so I don't want to, like, get into the Ben and Jerry's conversation because those dudes are great. And um, and there's, like, a couple of other, like, folks. Um, I spoke at their, like, shareholder, um, that's true, their, their franchise meeting. Um, and, you know, I'm talking to their franchise folks with Melissa Harris Perry about like systemic racism and injustice. And so like, you know, let's, they're, they're great. Um, but um, there's like, for the most part, I do believe that uh, if you take money from corporations that you don't have alignment with, I just don't know how you get there. Now, sometimes you may have alignment with certain companies. There may be a reason why you have alignment with companies. We've made the choice as an organization that has to hold corporations accountable um, and has to hold government accountable that we don't take money from either. Um, it has been um, at times challenging when you're in the middle of a, 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 a rough patch um, and folks are offering you money, but it has also allowed us to have a competitive advantage in the space, a real distinction in the space. And it's also allowed us to avoid some of the complications um, that happen, right? Um, uh, Facebook has tried to give us money multiple times on multiple different ways um, through multiple different vehicles. And we have uh, turned it down. And, um, you know, I have watched them um, attack other critics and be really mad at other critics who have taken their money and then criticized them and have had all sorts of ways to really go after them. And they've never been able to say that we've been hypocritical. Uh, we've never had to deal with that. We've been able to, um, and I've never had to think when I decide to run a campaign, um, am I gonna be able to pay this staff member that is funded by this corporation? Great, thank you. Uh, this is a question that has been uh, recommended to us by many people in the chat here. Um, yeah, thank you so much, Mr. Robinson. I think that was really enlightening and informational or informative. And so my question, um, obviously there's been a lot of talk about Biden's history with criminalization and how harmful his crime bill was, but reading Biden's plans for criminal justice reform, it seems that he has 
a lot more progressive measures than is discussed in the mainstream, such as end ending mandatory minimums and the death penalty, decriminalizing marijuana. Um, why do you think Biden is not highlighting these issues in the debates and is instead focusing on other things? And do you believe it would do him well to start discussing these issues? Um, I don't know if um, debate and public speaking is like his gift. Um, and so um, I don't know. I mean, I really think that that's probably the, the, the better question, the better answer that is going to come from the campaign. Um, I'm very clear about like, who the best choice is given the choices we have. And, and I'm not like, like there's, there's no, there's no, there's no space I'm creating around here. I do think that it's important and really try to uplift this. And if you ever have any time, we did a, um, a series called voting while black, which was our podcast series, which we won best political podcast for, um, at, at the Webby's. Um, and, um, I interviewed all, almost all of the presidential candidates on the Democratic side. Almost all of them sat with us, um, except for the current nominee. Um, so maybe I was bad luck or something. Um, and um, we spent time, um, but we asked everyone. We tried to get everyone. I offered to fly places to tape it. Um, we spent our time not on the what, but on the how. And so to, to lean into your question why this is important is that I'm less interested when politicians come to for endorsements from us on the list of things they want to accomplish. I'm more interested on the how they're actually going to get it done. Um, what? Because at every turn, there are forces that stand in the way of progress for uh, Black liberation, freedom, or just justice. Um, and wh what are you going to do about it? How are you going to overcome this? And, you know, when I talk to folks like Bernie and, and Elizabeth and... Harris and Booker and Buttigieg, like, so they all came and sat and we talked, talked with them about it. And some of those conversations for me were really just helpful and instructive about, you know, politicians sometimes theory of the case on how they actually are going to get this done, that they can just will things to be done. And one thing that I think all of us um, should remember from the Obama years is, right, um, Obama wanted to get a lot of things done too, and there were a lot of barriers standing in the way. So if you're not going to go after corporate power, you're not going to go into trick power. If you say that you're going to take on policing and you take money from police unions, then you may not actually be getting to the place where you can take on policing. And so, you know, as we, as I have high-level conversations with the campaign, and which we just had to stop because we made an endorsement, and now we're like legally barred from talking the way the sort of campaign finance works. But as we were having um, those conversations, you know, what I want to, what I want to say is that it, um, it's important that we continue to push um, and, and all of us as citizens who are being asked for our vote, not just, not just listen to the list of things that people want to do because politicians, whether they are running for like class president and want to promise us pizza every Friday, or they're running for president of the United States and promising us a whole lot of things, need to not just tell us the promises, but actually how they're going to get it done and how that's going to be possible. Great. Thank you so much. Yeah. Oh, you're muted. Professor Cohen, you're muted. 
Okay, so I always have to embarrass myself at least once per class. Um, thank you. That was a great question and a, a, a really informative answer. So we're going to go to, to Allison here for the last question, please. Um, hi, thank you so much for speaking today. You've provided such great information and thoughts. Um, my question for you is color change sounds reminiscent of past organizations that pushed for black enfranchisement, um, specifically SNCC, which you've mentioned like their leaders um, in this class. I just want to know like where is color change informed by these organizations and um, where do they differ? So like how yeah. is color change different enough to like withstand time that SNCC wasn't able to do? So yeah. Well, I mean, we're very different than SNCC. I'm right now, like, despite good face cream, hopefully, I'm old enough to be the parent of the people that were in SNCC. Um, if we just, like, take age, like, not, like, they were all, eight, like, Julian Bond was 18, and John Lewis was, like, 20 years old and 22. Um, like, so that, it was a youth organization. Um, and yes, we have a lot of young people that work, but, um, you know, they... We are um, a different type of infrastructure. Um, um, you know, we live in a different era where uh, nonprofit industrial complex exists, where um, people actually have jobs with living wages and healthcare, and um, and a whole set of other things. That um, it doesn't mean that there's not burnout. It doesn't mean that there's not all sorts of ways. But it does mean that there's it is, um, it's not a thing you do for a couple of years before you figure out how to set up a family. We have people who have families um, that work at Color of Change. And in just in that, we don't, we're not constantly um, uh, dealing with a, a kind of tight time frame. I mean, I, I think like um, organizations don't always need to last forever. And I believe... Um, as a campaign driven organization that um, has a very clear theory of change that we should be around for as long as we are effective and being able to provide real pathways for people to be powerful. And when we're not, maybe we should go away. I do think that we've gotten into this idea that things are just supposed to be here forever and like we should like hold it up and prop it up because like that's what we do. And you know, I hope color changes around for a long time. I hope color changes around for 20 years. I won't be here because I actually believe in how organizations need to also change and bring in new leaders and bring in new ideas and, and constantly like develop. And so like, um, if I'm, if I'm here in like 10 years, then you all should figure out who has something on me. Um, because I am being, um, I'm, I'm being blackmailed. Um, and, um, that's a bad one. Um, but yeah, so, um, so yeah, I hope I answered your question. I mean, I, I, the, the only thing I'll, the only, the only thing I'll, I'll add to that is, is that we apps, I, I came up in organizing. I came up in activism. I would not be here if I was not trained and mentored and, um, supported and encouraged and sponsored by so many people. Um, and so what you see is not a reflection of any one person, but a reflection of a lot of people and a reflection of a lot of ideas. And what you see through me is a reflection of a lot of people that have poured in to my leadership um, over time as well. And so I didn't want to be too cute and just say, and not, not answer the question about us not getting things from other people. 
Um, we absolutely do. I don't think that like, um, um, even how we do strategic planning and thinking through things, right? Um, um, and at the same time, um, there are problems that we are facing in an environment and with tools that the people before us couldn't ever dream of and imagine the same way. And so both of those things can be true at the same time. Such a perfect place to end because I think it really highlights what we're going to be talking about some next week, which is I think there's a distinction between a social movement organization and a social movement. And, you know, there's, there's intersections, but it's, we're all in it together. You know, we have to be to, to win. So um, your assistant is texting me because you have a really important media hit. You have another, you have to go on TV, Rashad, in a minute. So thank you so, so much for joining us in the middle of what was like a big day for you and for the organization. So appreciate your time. The students got a lot out of it. Um, I think if you all ever need anything in terms of student interns or anything, please let us know so we can. For sure. Out. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Awesome. yeah. We'll put out, we'll put out the uh, website. Thank you so much, Rashad. Thank you for joining. Thanks Good everyone. Thank you. Good luck. Thank you. So we, we have half an hour left and we wanted to spend the time, um, not just debriefing what we just heard, but also debriefing last night. And we thought we would start, uh, Professor Cohen has, kind of queued up, if you all didn't see it, the part of the debate where um, the president uh, was asked to denounce white supremacist groups, and in particular, the Proud Boys, and then uh, on the contrary, in so many words, um, seemed, to, seemed to actually mobilize them. And in fact, uh, last night, directly after the video, their social media feed indicated the Proud Boys that they were extremely thrilled with essentially being called to action in their in their in their perspective by the president from their perspective so um are you ready professor yeah, to start with that? can everybody see this okay so this is from last this is uh um from last night's debate this is the i mean the uh, yeah we'll just let this play but are you willing tonight to condemn white supremacy i don't think we can see it we can't see it, Professor Cohn. We can only see it. Um, we need to stand and not add to the violence in a number of these cities, as we saw in Kenosha and as we've seen in Portland. Sure, Are you I'm prepared to, to do specifically that, do it? But I, go would ahead, say, I would say almost everything I see is from the left wing, not from the right so wing. So what are you, what are you, you, look, what are you saying? I'm, I'm willing to do anything. I want to see well, peace. Then do it, sir. Say it. Do it. Say it. Do you want to call him? What do you want to call them? Give me a name. Give me a white name. White supremacists and white supremacists and white supremacists. Stand back and stand by. But I'll tell you what. I'll tell you what. Somebody's got to do something about Antifa and the left because this is not a right his wing own, problem. This is, this is a left wing. This is a left wing problem. Antifa is an idea, not an organization. Oh, you got it. It's not malicious. That's what his FBI. His okay. FBI director Gentlemen, said. Well, we're then gonna, you know what? No, 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 we're done, we're done, sir. Everybody, we're moving on to the next. We're moving on to the next. That's not an idea. Everybody in your administration bad. tells you the truth is a bad, is a bad idea. Right. So, yeah, when afforded the point blank opportunity to denounce white supremacy, the president, you heard him. He simply did not do it, would not do it, cannot do it. And what's more, actually effectively issued orders to a neo-fascist gang, the Proud Boys, saying to stand back and stand by, which 
is not a disavowal. That is a direct order. Um, he later went on at the end of the debate to explain um, that he is going to be asking people, uh, as uh, Mr. Robinson was saying, uh, that you know that Donald Jr.'s demand that all able-bodied people join in an army of poll watchers, that he's going to be sending people into the polls to watch the polls to make sure that nothing illegal is going on. Why, why is it essential that these people be able-bodied? Not only is that, you know, in a sense, uh, ableist, is discriminatory against the disabled, but it, it, it implies that they are going to be called upon to do something besides merely observe, right? This is a warning. This is an explicit threat that he is going to be sending people to intimidate voters at the polls. He's going to be attempting to disrupt what actually happens in terms of the voting process. And he now has a white supremacist gang, the Proud Boys. Now, of course, they would tell you that they're not white white supremacists. They are what they call Western chauvinists. Um, And if you explain to me the difference, I would... Actually, I don't care what the difference is. There is no difference. It's not. It's a, it's a, a distinction without a difference. Um, that he is going to be sending these. These people now have the green light from the president of the United States to engage in violent voter suppression. That's that is the singular takeaway from last night's debate. If you ask me, Sarah, what do you think? Yeah, I, I mean, it was it was hard to have a singular takeaway, just given how much of a headache watching that debate was. It was so uh, hard to watch, hard to listen. Um, you know, I agree with you that, that that is the most important point we should take away for this class. But I think for most people watching it, it was just utter chaos and confusion and, and really the dumpster fire that's a reflection of what's happening in this country right now. It did not seem to sway anybody on either side. And it seems like the biggest takeaway on the political pundit side was that really all the polls are showing Biden in a leading position. It was Donald Trump's essentially debate to lose. It was his chance to change where people stood. And it it didn't seem to sway people much in Biden's favor, but it did not actually sway large numbers in Trump's favor either. So um, as bad as calling white supremacists to arms essentially last night was, on the other hand, there, it wasn't a real winner for Donald Trump either. Doesn't seem to have really moved anything with regard to his losing stance. Now we have to take everything with a grain of salt. The polls um, were misleading in, in 2016. Um, so we really don't know where people are. And most importantly, we don't know that our votes actually will be counted in the way that they typically have been um, given all the things that we covered before, including the situation with the post office, but um, it does, it does, it, it is clear that that style of debate didn't actually help Donald Trump, if you can call that debate. So that's the only thing I would add. Yeah, I don't know that you could call that a debate. I mean, I think every any time Biden got anywhere near him in terms of issues, but Trump just started interrupting shouting him down. Um, it was, I mean, it was chaotic. It was, I, I think, you know, I, I'm not one that, that you know that obsesses over these standards, but I I I do think that I've I've never seen, you know, I'm in my late 40s. I've been watching politics the, the, since I was a child. I've never seen a sitting president behave so just openly disgracefully. Like I know we're all used to it. We should be used to it. I, I've refused to become accustomed to this to normalize this. I think what we saw. 
uh, is all the evidence you could possibly need of how broken we are as a nation. What an imperial, you know, what an imperial power looks like in free fall, collapse, and decline. I, I don't. I, I think we we all need to recognize that we are living in a nation that is steeply deteriorating, and that there seem to be almost no countervailing forces to prop it up, uh, to maintain even the basic standards. I, I spoke in some detail on Monday about um, that the two-party system actually requires a basic consensus that says that the other party is allowed to exist, that the other party has the right to free speech, that we can agree on a common set of rules and that we can uh, abide by those rules and recognize and respect one another. And what we saw last night was the zero possibility of that actually going forward. Now, I do blame, you know, Trump almost entirely for what happened. Now, I do think that Biden was easily disrupted. He was easily thrown out of his rhythm. He was probably the least uh, favorite of mine amongst the Democratic candidates to find themselves in such a situation. Um, but I think I'll, I would say the one other major point in the evening that I think did strike a chord was the fact that, that Donald Trump went after Biden's children in such an overt way. Keeping in mind that Joe Biden has buried two children, right? Something that no parent should ever have to do. Uh, he has buried two children and Donald Trump went after his surviving son so shamelessly. I mean, as if there's nothing to say about Donald Trump's own kids. Jeez. Um, but went after his, Biden's son so, so shamelessly that at one point, and it's come out in the campaign that Biden um, did not prepare for a personal assault on his son and that Biden really did crack a little and looked into the camera and said, yes, yeah, my son uh, struggled with drug addiction. Um, many millions of American families have. And I think that may have been one of the few moments that actually also broke through. Yeah. I do want to say, I, I also hold Donald Trump, you know, the most accountable for last night. But I think to your earlier point about this being an imperial nation in decline, this is, I, I also, it's important to think, to, it's important to note that what we saw last night is not actually just Donald Trump. It is, as Rashad kept talking about, a whole network of enablers who are responsible for the decline of the empire. They have allowed and enabled Donald Trump. You know, it's his cronies. It's the folks that propped him up and have allowed him to stay because he delivered the tax cuts and the deregulation and the entire movement of our economy to the 1%. He has, he, they have enabled his behavior. They have encouraged it. They have not told him to stop this behavior. They have not told him he has to follow the rules. So in terms of somebody who's come in, as they said, the change candidate who changed his rules, as Rashad, as Rashad said, changing the rules required being enabled by the people who are truly in power, which is not necessarily the Senate. It's not, it's not either party. It is the corporate overlords <laughs> who control our democracy and have ena entirely enabled Donald Trump's behavior and thus are responsible for the decline of the empire, both responsible for it because extreme greed has led to 200,000 deaths with COVID. It has led to the spread of the pandemic this fall. It has led to wildfires in the West. It has led to a, a, a totally decimated economy because there isn't a sense of even maintaining a consumption base as we talked about last week to maintain the empire. And so let's be real, the behavior last night is not Donald Trump. 
It is the responsibility of everybody who has enabled Donald Trump. Yes, Mitch McConnell, but all the corporate overlords that have allowed it as well. Right. And to that point, I mean, we have to point out Chris Wallace, front and center, who not only did he, on the one hand, we, we can give him sort of gimme bonus points for asking Donald Trump about white supremacy, but he did not follow up. He did not actually say, okay, the president of the United States did not disavow white supremacy. He didn't follow up in any meaningful way. And in fact, he enabled the president. You know, It took him an hour and 13 minutes before he stopped to remind the president he was violating all of the rules. And when he did so, um, you know, he, he would say, well, Mr. President, Mr. President, Mr. President, Mr. President, Mr. President, Mr. President, oh, you're going to like the next question. That's not uh, someone holding the debate candidate accountable. That's someone enabling the president. And so Chris Wallace is absolutely enabling this system. Um, you know, I don't, my, I, I don't know, Sarah, I would ask you a question on this. I actively don't think we should have any more debates. I think this should stop. Um, mostly because, and I'll just put, I, I, I'm, I could easily be persuaded that I'm wrong, so I'm just going to put this out here as a polemic, in part because, A, I don't think we really learned anything. I think that people whose opinions may be swayed are skewed in two directions. Uh, what I have seen so far out of last night was that a lot of people, particularly a lot of white women, were really put off by the president in all kinds of, of really dramatic ways. The language I got out of a lot of the people I follow on Twitter is that there's a lot of you know, heterosexual women out there who re- reflected upon Donald Trump as an abuser. This is, this is how abusers behave. And so that, to one degree or another, at least one, in my understanding, is going to skew one group in one direction. The other is to, and like, we can't just think that Donald Trump was just out there flailing. He had a plan of attack and he executed it. And part of that was to picket Biden on the Green New Deal, on stacking the court, on uh, defunding the police and all of those things. And he got Joe Biden to stand up there and red bait and to throw Bernie Sanders supporters under the bus and to disavow all of the things that we as a civilization actually need to survive. And so in that sense, if white women didn't like Trump's tone, they're going to skew in one direction. But young people like, you know, like, you know and, and uh, Sanders supporters and others are going to skew in the other direction. They're going to do, you know, they're, they're going to take, I hope that people don't sort of, we know this about Biden and they're not going to be persuaded by Trump setting him up in this way. But I think there's damage done there. And then on top of that, as a kind of anti-fascist activist myself, like there's a need to deplatform. We need to deplatform the president. We can't let him on a national stage issuing orders to white supremacist fascist gangs. All right. Well, let me offer a <laughs> counter view. <laughs> I'm not, I don't feel super strongly about this either. This is not something I'm going to hang my hat on, but um, I do want to offer another perspective, um, which is uh, I think, I think to your very last point, President Trump already has those platforms. He has it all the time. He's constantly saying those things 24-7, but unchecked and un, with no, no debate, no, no contrary point, nobody's saying anything different. Um, he is, you know, on the media all the time saying outlandish, crazy things, you know, and uplifting white supremacists. Um, So I do think there is some value to having, even if it's as chaotic as it was last night, and hopefully there'd be a better moderator who doesn't allow for that. But um, it is important to see Donald Trump on a stage with somebody else 
who has a counterpoint and is able to argue, put some points forward. Now, I agree with you, Biden. I agree with Rashad. Biden's gift is not speaking. <laughs> it's not debating. It's not uh, communicating, period. Um, but he represents a different point of view than, than Donald Trump. And without debates, all we're going to hear up to the election is Donald Trump, because Biden is not speaking in any other context. He's not in the media. He's not putting out his platform in a vocal way for the reasons Rashad talked about. Um, and, and so a lot of the media is focused on Donald Trump's words and actions with no counterpoint. So I do feel like it's important for a couple of reasons. One, to allow for the counterpoints, even if it's tough to watch and it might rub some people the wrong way. And two, um, there was an article in Slate this morning titled, The Debate Was Great. And it was, <laughs> it's, it's an indication of how bad it was last night that that article got a lot of hits because we were like, what the hell are you talking about? Um, so the, the reason they said the debate was great is that it, uh, beyond allowing him to just say his points, it showed his insanity. It really displayed his insanity, his, um, that he's lost it. You know, for all the talk of the senile moments of Biden, he appeared to be a, a truly crazy person last night. Um, as the president of the United States. So there is a way in which, as you said, there will be some voters who are very turned off by that, even if they agree with him. So I, I do think there's a, there is an argument for there to be more debates. Fair enough. Let's, um, you know, we, we, I know I, I appreciate that. I, I think, you know, um, I, you know, I, 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 I put out very strong opinions that uh, then I, I ask for equally strong. <laughs> and so I, I don't know. I mean, I definitely sat there last night and, and was wondering, and I'll put this to, as a question to the group. We need to end a little bit early, so we need to end in 10 minutes. Uh, but let me ask any of you, because what the question I put out last night, just, you know, very open question is, how does anyone retain their faith in the political system after what you watched last night? Does anyone want to venture an answer to that question because i i will a i will add that like um anyone that's not already asked a question today <laughs> we have a group of very committed participants in this class but i mean you know in, in a sense like yeah i mean yeah okay go ahead let me i'll, I'll click on you uh, go ahead please um i think it was disheartening to watch the election, but in one way, it motivated me to put more faith in my local and state elections, because a lot of the issues that the uh, two candidates were bringing up had to do with issues that could be addressed by local and state elections. So while I um, lost my in already losing faith in, um, at, in the Pres uh, the presidential candidates, um, it motivated me to really put uh, pay attention to what's happening at the local levels because oftentimes the problems they were talking about in terms of like, uh, I think law and order and race issues were huge issues, but and regardless of what the presidential candidates are saying, what ultimately is going to happen is that the local actors are going to be effective. So that's how I viewed last night's election in terms of hope or debate, sorry. Thank you. No, that's a, that's a good response. I mean, I thought it was it was very revealing that when the question about race comes up, and it, of course, it's a question about racism. It's not a question about race. It's a question about racism. But it got asked as a question about race, and Trump immediately pivoted to cops. Now, unfortunately, he successfully managed to get Biden to make the exact same pivot. Um, 
which was a little bit of a, a jaw dropper. But like, yeah, I, I, I appreciate that response. Thank you very much. Let me go to, to Sam. He, they, they had a question um, uh, for uh, Rashad, but uh, did not get to ask it. So go ahead now, please. Um, I think just to go to your question about uh, like, how do we maintain faith? I think ultimately, like, oh, because like we talked about a lot, like this election is kind of a tipping point in that if we continue along the same path, then I think, I, I think that sort of um, precludes any chance of making any sort of progress. Whereas if we kind of sort of start to course correct, I feel like we can put ourselves on a path where there are, there is like a lot of um, sentiment that can, I mean, there is like a large amount of people who are mobilizing, who are speaking out, who are um, like getting into Congress, getting into local governments that are more progressive, that are trying to implement changes that have to happen. So I think if we can sort of get back on the, like the right train tracks, and then keep going in that direction. My hope is just that, like, eventually those people will seize control, will take control, will become the essentially will become this, will be able to become the center in the future. I think that's really the only hope is that, like, we're on the right path and that it allows, like, those kind of people to, I mean, the, the future generations to, um, take over the narrative and to, to progress things. Can I just say something to that? Thank you, Sam, for sharing that. Um, uh, I guess I would ask you what you thought was, other than some progressives getting into office in 2018, certainly not the majority of either house or any legislature or even any city council, and well, most city councils, um, what was the right track? What was the right track? Is, I, I, is the right track just more progressives getting elected? Because certainly for people of color, low-wage workers, prior to the pandemic, even prior to Trump, we were not going the right track. You know, we were, the inequality was rising even under Obama. Um, racism was rampant. Um, you know, we've had a neoliberal, as Professor Cohen has talked about, kind of regime for decades now. Um, so I, I only ask, I understand what you're saying about the right track, perhaps being more progressives coming into office. And, and, and if we continue along that path, uh, that's good. I would argue that I think we need a pretty radical departure from the path, regardless of who wins. And, and my, one of my biggest concerns actually isn't, believe it or not, isn't that Trump tries to stay in office. It isn't, it isn't that Trump loses and tries to stay in office or that he wins. It feels like our actions as the left, which I include myself in, are going to be pretty clear in those moments. My biggest concern is that Biden wins and Trump leaves and the entire left breathes a sigh of relief and steps back and says, we're good now. We're on the right track. Maybe more progressives will get elected. We don't have to do anything. We don't have to mobilize. Let's just continue in the path we were going along prior to the pandemic and prior to Trump. And that would be the biggest mistake we could possibly make if we care about the future of our democracy, if we care about equity and equality. That would be the biggest mistake we could possibly make. So I don't see a track that we've been on that, that works, in my opinion. I think we've got to ditch the track <laughs> and move in an entirely different direction, uh, even if Biden wins. Otherwise, we're in serious trouble. 
Yeah, I, I agree with that. I think there's something that uh, has been said a few times in this class so far that, that by selecting the president, I mean, you're never going to elect a revolutionary to the presidency. It's not, that's not what that house is or does. Um, and this is a thing, a thing I said to my friends who, who were big Obama supporters in, in many respects, that the issue about the presidency, it's about the chair, not the ass that sits in it. That's right. You know, it's, it's about the chair, you know, um, and what that chair is. The same, same is true for the Supreme Court. You know, we can mourn RBG and wonder who goes in there, but it's, it's the chair. It's not the ass that sits in it. So in a certain sense, I mean, my question is loaded about losing faith in the system. I mean, like, system needs i mean we do need to lose faith in the system if we're going to remake it and rebuild it um so i but one more thing rashad's the way rashad framed it in terms of it's not who do i want to see in office it's who do i want to hold accountable that is how the right has seen elections and electoral you know uh cycles forever they don't think about it as oh, our guys in office, we're done. They think about it as, who do I want to go after? Which of these two do I want to go after after the election? And that is our problem on the left. We say, who do we want to get elected? And then we're done. Rather than saying, who do I want to go after? Meaning the minute they're elected, I'm going to start going after them. Because yeah. nobody who gets into office, given the powers that be, that are not that person, but the corporate overlords, as I've said, Nobody who's in that office will be immune to the influences of the elites. And therefore, we have to hold people accountable regardless of whether they're AOC as president or Donald Trump. Yeah, I, I agree with that. I think in selecting the executive, the chief executive, you're choosing who you, who's your adversary. Do you want to push Biden or do you want to fight Trump? Exactly. Those are your choices. One can be pushed, the other has to be fought. Um, you know, like th those are those, those, that's what's at stake. But like, we need to be clear, like what voting for president is. It is not the end all be all of your ethical existence. It's just one line on a ballot um, that has to be taken uh, as understood in a broader strategic framework of political participation and civic engagement. It's, it's not the whole ball game here. Let me just ask, um, we do need to end pretty soon because I screwed up and uh, we need to do some show business stuff at the end. But let me ask, uh, there's someone who we've not heard from who's going to offer our last comment here. Raisa? Hi, um, Raisa, we could call me Rosie. But anyways, um, professors, y'all mentioned um, that you want radical change. And like, I understand that we like, need to do multiple ways, like changing political systems, economic systems, etc. But how would you recommend that you, we would implement those changes? Would it like, would it be policy based, social based, et cetera? And if so, like, in what order slash like how? In a, to basically just how. Okay, one minute, how to change the world. Go, Saru. <laughs> um, you don't need to do it right now because the, literally the very next lecture on Monday is my social movements lecture. So I will talk to you all about social movements and how we can hold people accountable through social movement organizing. As Rashad said, it's an ecosystem. We've got to think about elections, can't give up on them, got to think about direct action, got to think about holding all kinds of people accountable, not just elected officials, but also corporations. So it's an ecosystem, but social movements is a big part of how we hold people accountable, and that's what we're talking about on Monday. So thank you, everybody, for joining today. Really appreciate it.